The Thriving Over Surviving podcast is for informational and inspirational purposes and not meant to be medical advice. Please consult your physician for any medical issues you may be facing. The opinions expressed by guests and advertisers are their own and not necessarily the opinions of Thriving Over Surviving podcast. I think teamwork has been instrumental because none of us living with multiple sclerosis should go it alone. There are nearly a million of us in this country. You can find support and you don't have to leave your house because now there is the internet and you can find really good support that way or through blogs and podcasts and support groups in person or online. So I think teamwork really resonates with me because none of us should go it alone. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast, where we discuss the ups and downs of our autoimmune diagnoses, but ultimately how we thrive in spite of it. I'm your host, Edie Sahesian. I was diagnosed in 2015 with multiple sclerosis. I've learned a lot about MS in myself over the past few years, but the most important thing I realize is that I am going to live my best life. MS and other autoimmune diseases tend to be a bit of a bummer if we let them. So why not battle back by finding our joy? I want to remind everybody listening about the MS Walk in Orlando on April 2nd at Blue Jacket Park. If you would like to come, that would be amazing. The link tree in my Instagram bio and the Thriving Over Surviving podcast website have all of the details, including the location, the events I'm going to be hosting that day, that weekend, and how you can get a t-shirt to support us in our cause. I'm really excited to talk to my guests today because all you listeners out there know that I am single, happy singled, but always looking, right? And (laughs) I'm in awe of these people, these caretakers who support us Spoonies. And if you have one of those, hold on to them tight. Those people are worth their weight in gold, I'm telling you. So there's couples out there also that each of the spouses have an autoimmune disease. And I know this exists because we have one of these couples here on our show today. So Today, Dan and Jennifer Digman join us. Jennifer was diagnosed in 1997 and Dan in 2000, both with multiple sclerosis. So they actually met at an event, an MS event in 2002. Who knew that an MS event would become a source of romance for these two human beings? So after exchanging vows in 2005, um, they've gone on to accomplish so, so many things, especially in our MS community. So they say they are a couple that takes on MS and Dan's walking and Jennifer's rolling, but together they're moving forward. So let's chat it up with the Digmans. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's, that's, that, that was really nice. I'm glad you're here today. And as we were um, prepping for our podcast, I was just telling these lovely humans, it's so great to connect with people kind of in person. We're on like a Zoom thing here, but you spend so much time with them online and chatting and celebrating everyone. It's great to get to know you like this. Yes, it is. It's a horrible disease, but a great way to meet some wonderful people. For sure. So Jennifer, let's get, let's get started. We'll dig in here. So your diagnosis in 1997, what still stands out to you when you think back? What, what is that? Is that 34 years from your diagnosis story? 24. 
I can't do that math today. That's okay. You can always say MS brain and we get you. We understand. I was, it was my senior year of college and I started having numbness in my feet, which my doctor could explain away to horrible shoes. Keep in mind, it was the 90s, so not exactly the most supportive footwear. And then I had numbness in my right hand, which again, my doctor could explain away because I was doing go back to the 90s, doing like blue books and scantrons and writing papers longhand. And so she said, as soon as I'm done with school, the numbness would go away. And it did. So I graduated from college. I got my first big girl job. And I was working in Detroit and my left eye would not abduct. I mean, it wouldn't move. So it looked like I had one fixed eye and I saw two of everything. And then I went back to my doctor, my primary care. And she said, I can't, can't explain this. So she sent me to an ophthalmologist who said it looks like multiple sclerosis. And rather quickly, I met a neurologist who did the spinal tap and said, yes, indeed, it is multiple sclerosis. So I was diagnosed quite quickly in the course of like a week. Probably I had no idea, completely blindsided. But, you know, I'm 23. This is not in my future. This is nobody plans for multiple sclerosis. So I think looking back, I was so blasé, if that's the right word, just like, oh, I'll just do some steroids and I'll feel better. And oh, you know, there wasn't a lot of information. We had three medications at the time. So it wasn't, I don't know that I took it as seriously then as certainly it's Dan and I do now. But I knew that I had to go on with my life. I couldn't, I couldn't let this define me. By define me, I mean in a negative way. So that's my story. So I'm just thinking back to when I was 23 and I don't know. I think that I would have been a little blase myself. I mean, for two years, I ignored my diagnosis, really. And so at 23, (laughs) it would have been more than two years, I'm thinking. So I totally hear what you're saying. I feel like because it's such a different story for everybody, right, Jennifer? Like you had those symptoms, but your diagnosis came pretty quickly. It's very rare. Yeah. I was very lucky. And looking back, I did make changes. It just it was so, I mean, I don't know if any of the listeners or if you yourself remember the dark ages of dial-up internet, of America Online. That's, you had to, if you wanted information, you had to go to actual books to look up information in the internet was very shady at the time. You know, you didn't know what you could trust. So it was the dark ages a little bit. So now I remember when I was diagnosed in 97 that someone who had been diagnosed in the 80s was like, oh, this is a wonderful time to be diagnosed. And now I'm sitting in this position in 2021 saying if you're diagnosed with MS, there are so many resources so many medications, so many things out there. But as Dan and I often talk, it's got to be overwhelming. 
now that there's so much, it's yeah, it's the it's the polar opposite mm-hmm. situation, right? And, and Jennifer, did you have anyone in your family that also had MS? <laughs> That's the funny thing that, as I learned after I was diagnosed, that there was an uncle on my father's side of the family, and my grandmother, my my maternal grandmother, had a doctor tell her back, you know, 50, 60 years ago that he thought it looked like she had MS, but she, she didn't have time for that. And she just, there wasn't anything out there. So she just kept on trucking. And that is just how different MS looks over the course of six or seven decades. Absolutely. And I remember when I was first diagnosed, I'm thinking, who nobody in my family had been. And I'm thinking, who has MS? And my dad was like Annette Funicello because we lived in Utica, New York, and she's from there. She would be on the news sometimes. And I remember seeing her very frail and in her wheelchair, not able to speak very well. And that was my mental image of MS when I was diagnosed. But Dan, what about you? I mean, 2000 isn't that much later. Was your story much different than Jennifer's? You know, yes and no. I mean, I the biggest thing that led me to even looking into it is I was at a work conference down in Detroit in a hotel and I had gotten a paper because I'm just like, hey, this is my chance. I can just relax tonight. So I got a newspaper. So I go lay on my bed in the hotel room and I honestly felt like I was laying on a towel. Like there was a rug or something under my chest because I had just like some numbness in my torso and it wouldn't go away. And then when I looked and there's nothing there and my hands had gotten numb. And so that's when I, you know, and it wouldn't go away. And so then maybe about a week later, I got an appointment with my primary care doctor and he looked into things and then they started doing all these tests. And it was probably like within, you know, that was in like mid late October And it was like December 17th of that year, I got a call from my primary doctor after doing all these tests and things. And they said that, you know, most likely cause was multiple sclerosis. Merry Christmas, right? And then it was just like going and setting up time with the neurologist and everything. And finally, Valentine's Day of 2000, I was diagnosed formally with MS. And I think it was just really the numbness in my hands and my feet had started to get numb and then just that tightness in my chest. There was something from maybe a year prior to that I had mentioned to my primary care doctor during a physical, he had asked like, were there anything? And I was just being silly. He says, do you ever have numbness? And I said, not when I'm sober. And and, and, and so, but I had talked to him that is just like when I would drive to work, so I commuted about an hour and I'd look down to change the radio station, I'd get like a shocking down my spine. The Lermet sign. Bam, mm. see? And and I was I was a little overweight at the time and he had chalked it up to just me pinching off something as I, and it, you know, but it's just having that notation because back then when, as Jennifer's talking about the dark ages, you had to have several episodes of something before MS would even come into the equation. But I think it's because he had had that note in my files from a year prior about what would be their meat. Then when I was complaining about the numbness in my hands and things, that's when they could start. And so I'd had like 
another episode, as it were. But I had just started a new job. I started working at Central Michigan University on January 3rd, and I had already had that thought in my head that I could have multiple sclerosis. And so you have this new job and you're just like freaking out. It's like, what do you do? What do you do? And Valentine's Day, you hit that you have MS. And I I was very open and honest with my my boss the day after. And the, the coolest thing is she just said, what can we do to help? And at the time I had had, I worked, my office was on second floor of our building. He's, she's like, if you need us to move you downstairs. And I mean, it, you hear the horror stories of employers and everything, but it was just like, for me, I was working at a public institution in college and you're just a university. Certainly they would be a little more open to these sorts of things. And, and, and they were, I mean, CMU was perfect place to work. And so I think when it was formally diagnosed, I don't know how it was for you, but it's like, once you get the diagnosis, It's like, okay, there's a relief because now we can get to work. Now we can look at the medicines. What can, what can we do to control this? What can we do to slow it down? And so on some levels, that was a relief that it's like, okay, this is what it is. How do we move forward? Yeah. It's like you can exhale now. When I was diagnosed, I knew I had MS. It was either MS or Lyme disease. And that's what I had narrowed it down because I had the internet in 2015. And so it just didn't make sense with the Lyme disease as much. And I was just waiting for my answer. And I just kept pushing until somebody told me what I had already known. So yeah, very similar mental um, piece after they tell you, yeah, you have this. So let's do something. Yay. You know, we're focusing on core values. And when I asked you guys to take a little self-diagnosis, I guess, of what your core values are, and you had narrowed it down to five, which were teamwork, faith, hope, family, and humor, which I don't know if you know this, but humor is one of mine. And, And then from there, you drilled down to teamwork and faith. And so, Jennifer, um, can you pick one of those and and tell me about what it really means to you in your life and how that drives the work you do and the mindset that you have? When I was diagnosed, as we mentioned, there wasn't a lot of resources out there. So I I knew what it was like to be lonely with the disease and to be, I was 23, I wasn't dating, I was single at the time. And fortunately, thank God, I have an amazing family. So my teamwork started, boom, day one. But then I reached out to my community and and found an in-person support group. And through that in-person support group, I got involved in a program where I met this amazing man who turned out to become my husband. So I think teamwork has been instrumental because none of us living with multiple sclerosis should go it alone. There are nearly a million of us in this country. You can find support and you don't have to leave your house because now there is the internet and you can find really good support that way or through blogs and podcasts and support groups in person or online. So I think teamwork really resonates with me because none of us should go it alone. So I have just found that it really takes this group of people that you bond with to really get you in the the framework of mind that motivates you to continue moving on. Because I feel like whether your MS has progressed or not, 
knowing that you have it is not only traumatic, but it could cause you to spiral into depression. I mean, it's a very high um, percentage of people with autoimmune disease, especially MS that have depression. Mm -hmm. And so reaching out to those other people for support and love and all of those great things is really, it fills my bucket and I'm glad to hear that it's filling yours. And that's how you met your husband. So Dan, how did you come to the conclusion of faith as being one of your core values? I think it's always been there. Maybe it was parents that led me to that. I mean, church was always a a part of our life. And I had, you know, a really deep sense of faith and leaning on prayers and God and just this notion of like, get me through this. And I suppose in faith, you could, if you want to talk, God's on my team, right? Just the teamwork. That's the one thing. That's the one dependable thing. And sometimes things don't go the way that you want them to, but it is just that faith that this will be okay. And I I don't want to say, oh, it's part of the plan because then we can get in the whole debate of free will and all that other stuff. But it's just the, the notion that things have a reason, things that are, you know, there's just other ways that I can do this. I believe that it is God that's there, that's watching out just to help find things. It just, there's always a thing where people say, pray as though everything depends on God, but you act as though everything depends on you. And I think this notion to just throwing it up to Jesus and hoping that it happens, it's like, you can't just pray and think it's going to happen. You need to put your work into it. It's almost like, you know, meeting God halfway. When I was diagnosed with MS, I never once said, God, why me? You know, it's it's, it's the things like, why God, why? It's just this notion of saying, okay, this is what's happening. I didn't ask why, but I said, you got to help me. What are you going to do? What can I do? And so I did, and I got that help. I went to MS support groups right away and just look and see. And there's always these notions and things of people when they're first diagnosed and they don't want to go to support groups because they'll see people in wheelchairs. They'll see what the reality could be. And and at the time, the, the MS Society wanted to start a support group in the town where I was living. And I was just like, I didn't want to lead a group, but it's just like I was physically able. So like, that's my cause. Let me do this because there's people who want this that would not have the ability to do it. Faith and God helped me. So then I had that. And then the big answer to my prayer came on September 28, 2002. I mean, people say that you and Jennifer have it easy because you have each other. It's just like, this didn't happen because we shut ourselves off from the world. That's where you're out in putting the effort in because you want to. It's just a lot of times it becomes selfless. This is like, yeah, I want the help. But on some levels, it's like, really, it's my calling to help other people. That makes sense. They're not there for me. I'm there to help them. And in the process, you do it. I think that's just where the faith, I just always have that that strong sense that, that I can count on God. And by the same token, God can count on me. So. Okay. So I just think that you're such a lovely man. (laughs) (laughs) You're so lucky, Jennifer, to have this thoughtful, faithful man in your life. And when we were talking earlier, I'm like, they have the same core values you do. You guys are living these things. You're so dependent on one another for just a lot, a lot more than a normal couple would be. So how does that work between you guys? I know, Jennifer, you have secondary progressive. Correct. I have secondary progressive. I was diagnosed with relapsing remitting. 
And as I mentioned, there were the three drugs and I flew through those. You know, I, I, I don't want to say flew through, but I was on the Avonix and then the beta seron and then Copaxone. And I was on Copaxone until about five years after my diagnosis. And I wasn't having relapses where my doctors could give me steroids and get me back to baseline. I just wasn't bouncing back. And that's when my doctor told me that he he believed I was entering a secondary progressive stage. And fortunately, there was a drug that's very seldom used now that I took at that point in time, Navantrone. And that helped kind of stop the progression a little bit for me. But now they have great drugs. There's so many on the market that probably are a little easier handled. But so that progression, I just, then Navantrone kind of stopped the progression, but I didn't get any worse. I also didn't get any better. I've started using a wheelchair right around at that five-year mark, and I'm still using a wheelchair. I don't walk anymore. And so I'm reliant on Dan to do so many activities of daily living. So you ask how it goes in some days. I mean, it's like multiple sclerosis. Some days are better than the other. Sometimes I look at him and I'm like, I love you so much. I mean, I always love him. But sometimes I think he just, he must look at me like, Jennifer, I do not want to have to help you in the bathroom again. Or I have to help you change clothes. Or I'll be like, Dan, I just, I want to be able to feed myself. You have to remind yourself, thank God. I'm lucky enough to have somebody who can help me eat, who is willing to feed me or help me. But it's like, dang it, I wish I could do it for myself. Or, you know, he does my hair. I'm thinking I'm having a pretty good hair day today. And I'm lucky I have a cute husband, A, and then that he can fix my hair. Like, dang, you know, that's total package. So that's for me what it's like. I mean, sometimes it's good. I mean, all the times it's good. And when it's bad, whoo, it can be, it can really, you know, it can test our faith and test our core values that that's the nature of the disease. So Dan, what's your take on all of this? Because I heard her say she's sitting there and she's like, I want to be able to dress myself and you're helping her every step of the way and doing her hair and what is what are you feeling about that? What's your mindset toward it? I, I've often on on several occasions, more often than not, I, I always have to remind Jennifer that chivalry isn't dead. And it's like I always feel that it's like these are things. I mean, you think back to like when you're dating someone and what you do to bend over backwards to help them, to impress them. And we've been married for 16 years, been together for 19. And it's like I still feel like I'm trying to win her over. And so it's like, you just, I mean, these are things that you would do anyway, whether she had MS or not, if she wanted help fixing her hair, absolutely. That's what, that's what you do. I think that's where the caregiving comes into play, where it's just like, we mutually do this. I mean, that's what comes with being together, but it's like, she just knows it's like we have this unwritten rule or it's understood. I'm going to step off. I'm going to back away and let her do it. You know, it wants to feed herself or wants to try fixing her hair and everything. And I, But at the same time, then she needs to know when to ask me for help because I'm not just going to step in like just Super Dan and, and just say, oh, let me get this for you, dear. And that's where the communication and stuff. And so I don't mind helping her. And I think that she realizes that sometimes and that's where that's where she has empowerment and everything. It's just like she knows that she 
can do the stuff, but she also knows when it's time to step away and turn it over to me. So it's not creating more work for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing to like help her eat, but then if she spills soup all over the floor, then that's on me to clean up. And that just, that, that requires a little more work on my part. I would do it, but you know, it's just, but that's, those are those shared things. And so I don't mind, I don't mind doing things. And, and that's, she's good at like, not always nagging me for the most part, but you know, it's just like, if I deserve and need to be nagged, I, I, I take it. But at the same time as if, if, if and she, likewise, exactly. And if, if she, and I, and I nag her, but that's just where. You know, for us, and that's always the thing. It's just like for as much as I'm helping her, she's doing just as much for me. It's just like, you know, I work full time and she has a caregiver that comes during the day. And so they do the shopping, they do the cooking, they do the cleaning. And that's not to say that I can't cook, clean or shop that I'm, I'm fine with doing that. But it's like, then I don't have to worry about her. Or we have nieces and a nephew back in Iowa Christmas time. And that it's just like, I don't need to worry about what what's on the kids Christmas list. That's on her, you know, she takes care of that. And she does the shopping. And if people know that if they want anything done, or any meetings kept between the two of us, you need to talk to her because I don't keep track of things. You know, she's she's she schedules everything. I get meeting invites for if we're if we're supposed to write a certain essay tonight. I'll have a meeting invite because she's like, okay, well, this is what we have to do tonight. It's just that, that give and take, and it's just that understood. So I don't mind helping her because it's just like, I think when we're, when I was diagnosed with MS and I think for all of us with MS and think that, oh, I don't want to ask for too much help, but it's just like the friends that you ask for that help, you just have to step away and flip the roles. And it's just like, you know, if that same friend was asking you for that help, you would do it in a heartbeat, no questions asked. And so it's just like, so that, you know, what I, I, I live with my best friend. So it's just like, of course I'm going to do it. I think sometimes it's easy for us when, when, when we're living with MS and you're, you're asking for help that you put it upon yourself to say, oh, certainly this person is getting annoyed and stuff. And I'm just like, it depends what the score of the football game is. No, I'm, I'm not annoying. So because she's watching so it with me. So <laughs> it's the epitome of teamwork. Right. Yes. And if I can use the word soulmates, I don't know if you guys believe yeah. in that, but right. this is what I picture it being. Yeah. And I think one thing, if we're going down the sports teamwork analogy, we don't keep score. I mean, to have a healthy relationship, you cannot keep score. And sometimes in my head, I'll be like, oh, Dan's had to help me three times to do this or oh, he worked all day and he's probably really tired and he, he doesn't want to do this. Or, oh, Jen had physical therapy today. Maybe she doesn't want to go out to dinner or something. We just don't keep score. That's such a healthy, healthy way of thinking about all of it. I just want to, for the listeners, what is the difference between the relapsing remitting MS and the secondary progressive? I just wanted to hit on that real quick. Well, as I, as I understand it, I mean, like relapsing, remitting, it's like when you're first diagnosed, I mean, you have your exacerbations, you have your flare-ups, your attacks, but then it's like, you know, things calm down and this is like you start here, you go down a little bit with the flare-up and you return to baseline. 
But, you know, as I understand, though, it's more often than not, you don't quite get right back to where baseline was. And it's just, but it's just like, you know, and it could be two months, could be two years before you have another flare up, another attack and stuff. But I think then once over time and depending on the number of exacerbations, the severity of the exacerbations, you know, and at what point carries through. And I know that they at one point in time had put like a year on it saying after about 10 years, most people with relapsing or remitting go to secondary progressive. They're, they're not, you know, they're not talking that. So, I mean, don't, don't take that clip and think that I, Digman just said, oh, well, 10 years. I mean, cause I've had it for 22 years and I'm still relapsing remitting. So it's like, and, and that's where you always do the disclaimer, consult with your neurologist. But it's just like, you know, at, at what point do you elevate to the secondary progressive? And I would defer to Jennifer. I just think it's that gradual worsening where you're not getting back to that baseline. But I'm not a doctor. But that in my head is how I, I always just, you know, I could walk and then it was just gradually getting worse. It went to a cane and then a quad cane and then a walker. And then just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. No matter how many cyamandrol infusions I had or not infusions, but, you know, treatments, I just couldn't get back to where I once was. There's just so many little nuances about this disease that if you're not digging, if you're not researching, if you're not seeking out information, you don't know. I had that Lermet sign mm-hmm. too, and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a side effect of the polarity medication that oh, I was wow. on. And I recently, within the last couple months, found out what it yeah. was. And so it, it just, like I said, if you're not digging, you're not going to necessarily know. I forget what neurologist he was. There was a neurologist though, who really wanted to not label anything as relapsing, remitting, secondary progressive, primary progressive in the sense of, you know, to her take is it gives a false sense of somebody who has relapsing, remitting. It's just like, it's still active and everybody is, you know, progressing. MS is progressing all the time. I mean, you know, so there's that notion. So it is just the the question of assigning those terms to it. But yeah, it's consult consult your doctor. So my my first neurologist wouldn't tell me what I was wow. either, and that's you know, th- and that's fine. It was fine with me. I just knew how I felt. And that was more what mattered. So I know you guys um, probably know more about MS than the normal person with it because you're so involved in our community. And as members of the Government Relations Committee for the National MS Society of Michigan, what's your role there? We try and stay involved in what the issues are at the state level. And then at the federal level, we are fortunate. We live about an hour away from the capital of Michigan, Lansing. And so once a year, pre-COVID, we would go down to Lansing and we would advocate for different pieces of legislation at the state level. And now COVID seems to be relenting a little, thank God. We are hopefully going to go to Lansing again in May this year to meet with legislators. And then we advocate on the national, the federal level. We'll meet congressmen and women in state, or we will go to D.C. We've been very lucky, and we just try and put a face with the disease. And then 
different pieces of legislation we advocate for. There is so much power in our story. Medication is astronomical, like MS medication. And that that's one thing that we're always advocating for is how can we get medication more affordable, more you know, accessible to more people, and then home care, you know, just different pieces of legislation and issues that are important to us in the MS community. I think that's where getting involved with the National MS Society with their, because not to give this sense of like, oh, we're here studying the laws and legal and acts and everything. The MS Society does a great job with advocacy to inform activists and everything. Okay, well, this is an issue. This is an issue. And like, these are what you need to talk to your congressman, your congresswoman, your senators about. And that's where you develop your relationships with your elected officials who I I never would have thought that I would have been involved in government and stuff. And thinking back to college and I took government as a class, I said, this is such a drag. And now it's like such a passion, you know? So, but it is that that's with the advocacy and activists. It's just like, staying informed and connecting with your legislators. And knowing that your voice has power. And it does. And I'm glad that we have people like you two to advocate for us in such a positive way in ways that are really going to impact our lives, all of us with MS. And so, yes, thank you is what I would say. To end that segment, it's thank you, appreciate all that you do for us. And you do so much more. I mean, you have a blog and you also have a podcast, a couple takes on MS. And so tell us about how all that got started. You know, we started our blog, I think it was like nine, 10, 12 years ago. Do you hear the stories? You see things just to get out there because when I was first diagnosed, back in the dark ages with the internet, there weren't a lot of positive voices. And I was just like, I want it to be a positive voice for MS, not sugarcoat things, but just realities. And we had had a good friend that I worked with, Cynthia, and she said, you guys need to write a blog. You need to have a blog. And you're just like, well, what's this look like, Cynthia? And so she did this. And then it was just like looking at other blogs and it became a matter of writing about our life, our situations. And then it just kind of blossomed from there. And so then we just started writing for the blog and then you start writing for other websites and publications because I'm a writer and I'm I'm bringing her along with me because I think she's a great writer too. You know, we did the blog and then things, always one thing leads to another. And then we wanted to do a podcast and then you're like, oh, it's going to take so much work. And then we had a good friend of ours who is into podcasts and he's like, you guys really need to start this. And it's like, Ryan, could you help us? And so just have voices out there with, I think then just questions are, you know, talking about caregiving, talking about just living with MS, not, like you say, not to sugarcoat, but just showing what's possible. Because a lot is possible. When I get the opportunity to speak with other people that are thriving with MS, it's it really gives me an opportunity to learn so much more firsthand from you guys. Anyways, so I was listening to your podcast earlier in the week, the most recent one. So we're filming this in December, full, <laughs> full disclosure for yeah. everybody. It's not going to air till February, but we're, we're filming it now. So I was listening to your most recent podcast and... Oh my gosh, I felt like you were talking to me. And so Jennifer, you were talking about, it was about guilt, Mm -hmm. the, the topic of the podcast. And Jennifer was talking about how, if I may share, just about how it's, 
been, and I could fall into this so easily. And I, I have had these thoughts before about how, if I, if I was skinny, if I hadn't eaten that fast food for all of those years, would I I have still progressed? And I know the answer is probably yes, (laughs) but still I have this proclivity to perseverate on it sometimes when I'm feeling down. And so I I just want to, again, thank you and approach with you with such appreciation for sharing those heartfelt sentiments. Because it is super, I mean, you know, the guilt spiral when you are feeling like, what did I do to deserve this? And then you take it all in. Like I have enough control over multiple sclerosis. Like if I'm going to give myself something, I give myself an incurable chronic illness because I ate a double cheeseburger. (laughs) That, I mean, you are laughing because it doesn't make sense, but oh, you get it four in the morning. Heck yeah, that makes perfect sense. (laughs) And it's all your fault. And if if Dan hadn't taken a candy bar from his dad's service station, he wouldn't have multiple sclerosis. <laughs> but when you're when you're having a rough day or when you're feeling sorry for yourself, which you're completely entitled to do, that spirals. And before you know it, you gave yourself multiple sclerosis and that guilt. Dan and I like take a step back. You wouldn't let your friend talk to herself or himself like that. Why Why do you talk to yourself like that? And that's the truth, what you just said. I wouldn't allow anybody else to talk about themselves like that. Why am I beating myself up over something I really can't control? And so, but it's through those kinds of messages and Dan's you know, amazing writing and you guys as a team and, and moving forward and having those conversations and sharing it with other people, I think is so um, just special for us to be able to listen to your thought processes as a couple, as an individual and how you've handled them over the years. It's really motivational and inspirational for all of us listening. So again, in appreciation for that, thank you so much. So (laughs) I've been waiting this whole segment to talk to you guys about this. And you mentioned it before, and I really wanted to jump in and go, but I did not. And so, yeah. So you guys love Michigan football and you know who came from Michigan, right? Tom Brady. That is right. And he is my boyfriend. And so I know that you have a relationship with him as well. Am Uh, I right? Oh, look at Dan's face. He's like... Tom stepping out on Dan. Oh, Edie, that's so bad. Uh, Breaking my husband's heart on Saturday, no less. Sorry, Dan. (laughs) Jennifer Jennifer always makes fun. She's like, you got a man crush on Tom Brady. And I was like, him as a competitor, just the intensity. Those are the things. That's what I do when I'm talking like competition and things. And it's just like, he can get so mad at, at... I could go on and on, but yeah. So what's his number? No, kidding. <laughs> right, right. Because, you know, he's my boyfriend and I have yes. his number. So it, it starts with a 12 now. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm a big Patriots fan. And when he came down here to, you know, Florida, it was like, I have two 
teams to root for now because I can't, after 20 years, you can't stop rooting for Tom no. Brady. And so for them to win the Super Bowl, and now the Patriots are doing so well, and by the time this airs, we'll know what the results of the, the season are. But yeah, I knew that I loved you guys when I heard and understood <laughs> about your football love for Michigan. Yeah. And so yeah. could it not talk to you about that? We really talked about so many things today. And some things that resonated with me were first off when Dan went into his boss and said, I have MS. And they said, how can we help? And I hope that all employers have that same viewpoint toward their employees because working together and with that teamwork, providing those things so that everything could be equitable for all employees, right? Those with disabilities makes everybody everybody's work turn out better. So meeting God halfway. I loved that, Dan. I'm stealing that. Don't keep score, you guys. As a married couple, I mean, that's got to come into play a lot. Advocating for us in the MS community. Don't sugarcoat. Share out your story and just showing everybody the, the love you have for one another, the perseverance that you have, and your ability to just share your truth with other people and they benefit from that. I had such a lovely conversation with you guys. So people are going to want to reach out to you. Could you please share with us how we can do that, how we can get in touch with you? Yeah. It's, I mean, you can email it. I mean, you go to like on our blog, a couple takes on ms.com and there is a place where you can contact us or reach out to us on Twitter. The handle there is at Dan Jen Dig. And, and we're on Facebook, Instagram, and that's Digman D is on his Instagram for us. And yeah, Facebook, a couple takes on MS. So really, if you just go a couple takes on MS for any social media handles, that's how you'll get a hold of us. But yeah, I think we, you know, we respond to messages and everything on any of the social media. So just reach out to us and... Wonderful. And all you listening, if you're interested in digging deeper to determine your core values, please visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. And there you're going to find a guide that will help you discover your core values because we all deserve to live our best lives. Thank you so much, Dan and Jennifer, for being here today. Please keep thriving. Well, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank so you. great to chat with you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. If you would like to join our growing community of thrivers, there are a lot of ways to do so. Visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. There you'll find links to all our social media, my blog, and lots more. See you next time when we chat it up with another autoimmune warrior on the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. Keep thriving. Keep thriving.